Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of New Ideal Live. New Ideal Live is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We discuss the complex issues and events that are shaping our world today uh, from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. This is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. If you'd like to learn more about our ideas, about Ayn Rand's ideas, best place to do it is by visiting our website, newideal.einrand.org. The topic that we are examining today is the Supreme Court's half-hearted defense of abortion rights. Uh, this concerns a decision that came from the Supreme Court several weeks ago, June Medical Services uh, v. Russo. I'm going to be joined now by my colleague at the Unran Institute, Paul Tasky, who's an attorney. I should mention my name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor uh, at the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm not an attorney, uh, but uh, I'm a, my background's in philosophy, and this is a topic, the, the abortion is a topic that I write about a lot uh, from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. So hi, Paul. Hi, Ben. So, Paul, I think it's important before we get into the kind of legal weeds, uh, and there are a lot of weeds uh, in any kind of important complex Supreme Court decision. Before we do that, I think it's important to say a word or two just about the philosophic context here uh, and, and part of what's informing our analysis of this, this decision. The main point to make here, and this is something that I've written a lot about, uh, other objectivists have written a lot about, is that in Ayn Rand's philosophy, there is a uh, there's a strong defense of abortion rights. Ayn Rand herself was a staunch defender of abortion rights. I think she had very good reasons for wanting to defend them. Uh, and it's a, it's a conversation that we could say a lot more about. It's one that we have said more about in other places. But just to do a brief, really a real uh, recap of the basic reasons that she had for defending abortion rights. It's important first to highlight Ayn Rand's view of rights generally, of individual rights. And the, here it's important that the main reason that she thinks rights are an important concept, the main reason we need rights is because rights are the moral principles that protect the rational productive actions of individuals who are living in a social context. That's primarily what rights are for. Now that doesn't mean that's the only thing that they protect, but it is the primary thing that they protect. Uh, the paradigm case of someone with rights is an individual, mature, rational, productive adult who's trying to negotiate boundaries with other people, with equals, who are living in a social context. And we can say a lot more about why that's the case later if we get questions about it. But that's, that's the perspective on rights that Ayn Rand is coming from. And Understanding that perspective really lends a lot of clarity to understanding her position on the abortion issue because embryos and fetuses are not uh, individuals who are capable of rational productive action and who exist in a social context. They are parts of a woman's body. But a woman is a potential, is a rational productive individual living in a social context. So that's the big difference. And, and the consequence of that is that the only entity whose rights are relevant in the abortion country controversy, at least according to Ayn Rand, is the woman. And so she thought there should be no laws prohibiting abortion at any stage of pregnancy. It's a very radical position. 
Uh, and it's one that you know I can I will point uh, our audience to resources on to find more about. But it's a very radical position. It's uh, you know she's an even stauncher defender of abortion rights than most of the people who defend abortion rights today. And it's definitely something we can talk more about later when we get to the Q and A. Uh, so that's the philosophic perspective that we're coming from on understanding uh, Rand's views of abortion rights. And what we want to talk about now, right, is, well, how do they, how do these aborts get, how do these rights get defended in our present legal context? Yeah, and we want to, we want to come with this understanding that even though Ayn Rand is a staunch defender of abortion rights, the Supreme Court isn't bound by Ayn Rand's philosophy, they're bound by the Constitution. Uh, so, Ben, maybe I think you wanted to say a little bit about the underlying constitutional basis to support uh, abortion rights and, and potentially also Rand's uh, uh, radical view on abortion. Yeah, and I've, I've heard people who've said that they maybe agree with Ayn Rand's philosophical views about abortion, but they have a hard time seeing how they fit within uh, the, the framework of the Constitution. I actually think that there are good reasons to think that the Constitution does defend abortion rights if you understand it in the proper way. And the first and the most important thing to say is that what the Constitution is primarily, and here I'm talking about the, the, the original Constitution, not even yet talking about the Bill of Rights, that so that will uh, play a role. The original Constitution is there to define government's limited powers. And in the original intention that the framers had, if the document doesn't specify a power, the government doesn't have the power. The burden of proof in arguments about what's constitutional, what isn't, is on those who assert that the government has a power. If they can't identify uh, a power that it has in the text of the Constitution, it doesn't have it. And notably, the Constitution doesn't say anything about uh, being there to uh, protect the uh, the rights of fetuses. It doesn't say anything about the fetuses, about a fetus even being a person. It doesn't say anything about protecting a woman's health uh, or safety from her own decisions. Um, an additional perspective on this, which is closely related, I think, is that is that rights and liberties don't need to be enumerated to be real and important. And this is something the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution made explicit. It said the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So sometimes uh, critics of the concept of abortion rights will say, well, I don't see a right to abortion enumerated in the Constitution. But the perspective of the founders was that you don't have to specify it. The, all the rights we have for the rights to exist. They saw rights as preceding uh, the establishment of a constitution. Constitutions are formulated in order to protect the rights that individuals already have. And so it's not the role of the constitution to, to create those rights or even to, to define them, though it you know, can help do that. But the things that the constitution does actually say about rights, I think are also very supportive of uh, the of a woman's right to abortion. I mean, the whole context, the whole intellectual context for the Constitution is the Enlightenment worldview that we have rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think it's very easy to see that these kinds of rights 
give the woman uh, a right to her life, to her liberty, and to her pursuit of happiness insofar as having an abortion protects that. Uh, the Roe versus Wade decision famously and controversially invoked uh, a right to privacy, which is often very controversial uh, because it, the Constitution doesn't say anything about a right to privacy. The justices themselves said, well, it's in the penumbra of the other rights that are protected by the Constitution. And I think that it is correct to be concerned uh, about uh, uh, that kind of argument for rights. But importantly, Roe also invokes liberty rights uh, and specifies the 14th Amendment and others which name liberty rights. And so if, if, the, if, the per, if nothing in the Constitution specifies that a fetus is a person, uh, it's, uh, liberty rights don't extend to the fetus. We can say more about that. You were going to say something, Paul? Yeah, so I, I think it's important about all the things you're touching on here about unenumerated rights and the Ninth Amendment, the 14th Amendment's protection of uh, the rights to life, liberty, uh, you know, due process of law. All those things are important. And it's, it's important, though, also to realize that the Supreme Court has largely ignored the Ninth Amendment as a source of guaranteeing rights and, and restricting government action because it would require them to sit down and define what rights are. And, and that could be very messy. And if they did it incorrectly, it could potentially open a floodgate in a Pandora's box that they wouldn't want to deal with. So it's understandable that they approach it from something they had already established in this right to privacy. They, they subsume abortion under that thing that they had already set out in a much more delimited way. Yeah, and it's, I think it's revealing that, uh, well, maybe revealing is the wrong word, but it's, it's at least curious that it's only on a controversy like abortion where you had the, the liberal 1960s court invoking the Ninth Amendment. Usually it's conservatives who are the ones who are invoking the Ninth Amendment and who are saying, uh, no, we have all kinds of rights that aren't necessarily enumerated. This is why they want to say we have property rights. And I mean, I think they're right to do so. Uh, and it's it's coming from the perspective that government is limited and that it's it only has the powers that are specified by the Constitution. For some reason, they don't want to invoke this this whole constitutionalist perspective on the question of abortion. Um, and I think it's worth uh, taking a step back and, and arguing that, you know, even if this ju jurisprudential perspective is mistaken, if, if, if you can make an argument, no, the Constitution doesn't really protect abortion rights, well, it's also important that we be philosophical about this and recognize the Constitution does have flaws. There are things it's uh, overlooked. The most notable of these, of course, was slavery. Uh, the Constitution had to be corrected to to outlaw that. Um, I actually think that the uh, the 13th Amendment that uh, outlawed slavery can be used to argue against uh, restrictions on abortion because forcing a woman to have uh, an abortion, I would argue at least, is, is a form of involuntary servitude. Now, there's a lot of back and forth we could have about that. But you know, the Constitution is not perfect. Uh, and what really has to come first is a prior philosophic understanding of what rights are, and then we hope that the Constitution protects those. I happen to think that it does in the case of abortion, though there's definitely arguments that you can have about that. 
Yeah, the 13th, the 13th Amendment, when you bring that up, is a bit tricky uh, because the court has you know, decided cases, not on abortion specifically in regard to the 13th Amendment, but to other things that would, we would think of as typically being involuntary servitude, like the draft. And they said that the draft doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't violate the 13th Amendment's protection against involuntary servitude. So it would at least require a revision or a revisiting by the court uh, in that line of jurisprudence, if not another amendment um, in, in light of, you know, our current understanding. And I should mention somebody in the chat, uh, I think pointed out that I misspoke when I was saying you could make a 13th Amendment argument uh, for abortion rights. What I meant to say is that it would be involuntary servitude to force a woman to have an unwanted child. And yeah, I think, Paul, you're, you're right that uh, there are certainly questions that are raised about whether that amendment would cover something like that. Um, but, you know, you look at something, look at a decision like uh, Brown versus Board of Education, which invokes the 14th Amendment, uh, which is about equal protection. Well, that was a, a rule. That was, a, that was an amendment that was supposed to originally for, you know, making uh, blacks in the South full citizens. Uh, but it, it wasn't for desegregating the schools, and yet it was famously invoked for that purpose in the 1960s, like 100 years after the amendment was passed, uh, the idea being, well, there's a broader concept at work behind the 14th Amendment than what may be the, the narrow concrete that was uh, under consideration at the time of its drafting. I think you could make a similar point about an amendment like the 13th as well. But again, it would take an argument. Um, but Paul, uh, in spite of everything we've just gone through, in spite of you know, the arguments that you could make for why there is a, a constitutionally protected right to, uh, for a woman to choose an abortion, the Supreme Court, even though it's, it's touched on this issue, I mentioned that it touched on the issue in the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, its history of defending abortion rights over the past few decades has still been ambivalent. And, and, and there were, I think, a few highlights from the history of abortion jurisprudence that you wanted to take us through to understand that. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things that people should really know and understand in the history of this in order to, to kind of grapple with the court's recent decision that we're going to talk about. And I'll just go through some of them very briefly here uh, for the sake of setting the context. And the First one of those is Griswold versus Connecticut, where the court, as Ben said, set out the right to privacy in the first place through the what was called the penumbras of other rights. So the shadows cast by the rights that were explicitly mentioned in the Bill of Rights, like the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment was also mentioned, uh, as well as the 14th. You know, they cast a shadow and kind of created this extra right to privacy. And that's what's been kind of undergirding the, the discussion around abortion ever since. Roe versus Wade famously said that the penumbras were big enough to encompass a right to, for a woman to choose to terminate her own pregnancy within that right to privacy. Uh, and so in the Roe framework, the court set out a balance between the woman's interest in terminating her pregnancy and the state's interest in potential life and that interest would shift throughout pregnancy. It was the, the woman's interest was the largest it could be toward the beginning of pregnancy and would shrink as the pregnancy went on. And the government's interest was very small at the beginning and would grow uh, and be uh, you know, the predominant interest 
at the later stages of pregnancy so that government could in the third trimester outlaw abortion if it so chose to do so. And just to clarify, the, the, the grounds in Roe for government's assertion of an interest later in pregnancy was twofold. It was one that they said government had an interest in protecting the health of the woman. And later in pregnancy, uh, they, they seemed to be reasoning uh, abortions could be more dangerous. And that was true, or it was more true in the, in the 1960s than it is today. But then secondly, uh, Roe also asserted that the government had an interest in the potential life of the child, which is something we can maybe say a little bit more about later. Ayn Rand didn't think that potential beings had rights. She thought only actual individuals had rights, but that's uh, something to discuss later. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's true. It did set out that duality of interests in both the woman's health and in potential life. Um, the standard changed somewhat in the 90s uh, when the court decided Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the, the, now it's considered the fundamental case to go back to when you're discussing abortion, but it changed the test. It, it was no longer the strict balancing. It set a new line of viability. And so pre-viability, the government couldn't restrict abortion other than just general safety measures. Uh, but then after viability, it could place restrictions on abortion so long as those restrictions didn't create an undue burden on the woman's ability to you know, receive or, or procure an abortion. And you only know if it's a undue burden if there's a substantial obstacle. What is a substantial obstacle, you might ask? Well, that's an undue burden. It's very circular and not well defined by the court. So it, it kind of gives the court some wiggle room and creates ambiguity in this area of law, much to the chagrin of you know, abortion advocates and abortion opponents at the same time. Um, in 2016, the court decided Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt, and that case sort of, it, it claimed to be applying the Casey test of an undue burden just straight on, but it also added in a benefit burden analysis that was more reminiscent of the original Roe standard of balancing interests of potential life and you know, women's health. And does this benefit the woman's health? Is, is it just too much of a burden? Uh, and ultimately it was, the restriction there was struck down, but it, was, you know, it placed a spin on Casey that again, furthered more ambiguity. And then that law at issue in whole women's health was it again at issue this term in June Medical Services, which is the case we're going to talk about. Um, and so the court, the plurality of the court said, this is a straightforward case, just like the one we decided a few years ago, it has to be struck down for the same reasons. Um, but again, it applies this strange combination of the Casey test plus some balancing like in row. And so really it just further muddies the waters on what the standard is when we're trying to decide whether or not something you know, violates the woman's right to receive or procure an abortion or whether it's a perfectly legitimate restriction. Yeah, and I think we should say a little bit more about the, the nature of the law that was struck down in June Medical Services, uh, which is similar to the law that was struck down in Whole Women's Health. It, it's essentially, and there, there were a number of nuances that I won't go into, but it's essentially requirement on abortion providers that they have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles 
of the location of the, the abortion clinic. And the, the, the essential reason that the plaintiffs in each of these cases objected to the law is because it's, it's actually very difficult to get admitting privileges if you are an abortion provider for lots of reasons. In some cases, it's because the hospitals don't want to have abortionists uh, getting admitting privileges. In other cases, it's because uh, in order to get admitting privileges, you have to be admitting people on a regular basis. But as it turns out, abortion is a very safe procedure and rarely requires admitting privileges. And so even if uh, they didn't have philosophical objections to the abortion doctor, they still wouldn't be able to give them the privileges. So the consequence of this was it was going to be hard to get admitting privileges for many of the doctors. Uh, and as a result, especially in states where there were not many abortion providers to begin with, it was going to put a lot of abortion clinics out of business and make it very difficult for women living in these states uh, to get abortions. Texas uh, was a very is a very large state. Uh, the 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 few places that would be remained that would remain open after the law would require driving hours and hours. I mean, I just drove across Texas. It takes like two days in certain cases to get across the whole state. Uh, in Louisiana, there were only six abortion providers in operation at the beginning of the law. They estimated that it would go down to, I think, two once the law was applied. Um, I think it is two. And again, that would be, they would be hundreds of miles apart. And these, you know, it would either require, because there were other requirements at issue two, they had to come back for a second follow-up appointment in order to even receive the abortion, you know, irrespective of whether this particular law went into effect. And so if the, uh, if the clinics closed, the women seeking abortions would have to either shell out the money for uh, the second trip of hundreds of miles or pay to uh, you know, book a hotel room for the evening so they could go back again the next day because there are waiting periods that you have to abide by if you want to receive an abortion in many states. Yeah, so, so I actually think that the outcome of these decisions, striking down these requirements on abortion clinics, is a good outcome. I, I don't think there's any justification uh, for limiting a woman's ability to get an abortion in these ways. Uh, I think she has a right to an abortion. and This is a violation of that. However, uh, the outcome is one thing, and the reasoning that went into the decision is another. And Paul, you've already touched on some of the core uh, legal standards that are at issue in this latest case. Uh, I think that in order to understand the, the, the reasoning in the June Medical Services decision, you have to, as you mentioned, go all the way back uh, to Casey to look at this, uh, the way they decided uh, that you can pass laws restricting abortion, but only if they don't offer this substantial obstacle. And as you pointed out, if you just leave it at that, it's, it's vague what that means. You can say, well, it's an undue burden, but what does that mean? And yeah, the way that the whole women's health decision was made, it, it, it seemed, at least to some, to offer a way forward by uh, giving a further criteria by which this undue burden or substantial obstacle test could uh, be interpreted. And it was through this weighing test, which you've alluded, was already hinted at in the original Roe decision. What I'd like to show now is a passage from the latest June Medical Services decision this is from the plurality decision that was written uh, by Justice Breyer. And it's, it, what it's doing is linking all of these standards together. Uh, it quotes Whole Women's Health, which quoted Casey 
in explaining that a statute which, while furthering a valid state interest, has the effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman's choice, cannot be considered a permissible, a permissible means of serving its legitimate ends. And then Breyer goes on to say, we added that the un that unnecessary health burdens, health regulations impose an unconstitutional undue burden if they have the purpose of or effect of presenting a substantial obstacle to a woman seeking an abortion. Well, what's an unnecessary health regulation? Well, that's where they bring in the part that I have highlighted in green. Uh, we want to explain that in applying these standards, courts must consider the burdens a law imposes on abortion access together with the benefits those laws confer. So I take it that the idea here is that if you analyze the law from a kind of policy perspective, if you find that it doesn't really deliver any benefits, uh, but it does have disadvantages, then that's what counts as an undue burden. That's what counts as uh, a, a substantial obstacle. And you can ask, I think, pretty legitimate questions about whether that's what a substantial burden or uh, obstacle really means. But that's at least the way that the, the court is interpreting it in this latest decision. And so what the plurality then argues, what Justice Breyer uh, writes in his uh, decision is that there is no advantage to these current laws, but there are big disadvantages. And they go through all kinds of considerations here, arguing that the admitting privileges requirement isn't necessary for the woman's health. Uh, it doesn't serve any special credentialing function that other kinds of existing policies already do. Uh, the woman would be able to get into the hospital if she needed to anyway, even if the doctor didn't have admitting privileges. Uh, there are a variety of other things that are discussed in addition to that, but then they also talk about the ways in which uh, a number of different abortion providers in the state of Louisiana have tried to get these admitting privileges and haven't been able to. And then there's arguments in the dissents about whether they made a good faith effort to do that. But uh, I think it's, it's everybody concedes that at least some of these providers would lose their, uh, their privileges because of this law. And it, does that sound right to you as to, as to the how they're understanding this decision, interpreting this substantial obstacle test via this cost-benefit analysis? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, in large part, I think Breyer really does want to, to, he's trying to give clarity to what an undue burden is. And so he's bringing in this weight of benefits and burdens to try and, and give the court in future a framework to say, okay, no, you are imposing something that, you know, it offers no benefit or no demonstrable benefit to women, but it's imposing all of these burdens by closing down clinics, making providers lose their ability to administer these services to them. And it would be just in, insurmountable in some cases. But at the same time, it offers no no overarching clarity. It's a very, it creates a very fact heavy, fact specific need for the court to dive into all the minutia of, you know, what are the effects of all of these regulations rather than saying, no, this, this violates the right that we set out originally in Roe, a right to abortion under the right to privacy. So, you know, in trying to offer clarity, I think it really does kind of muddy the water here um, about about the scope and protection of abortion as a right. I think it's more than just muddying. Uh, I mean, I agree with you that it is. It's, it's, it's quite a lot of 
legalistic jargon that you have to wade through when you read this decision. I mean, it's 140 pages, uh, and the first uh, 60 uh, are, or so are just the, uh, the, the Breyer decision. But it's worse than that because what's getting obscured through this muddying is the concept of individual rights. And one of the things that, that I think is positive about the state of the abortion controversy in this country is that it's one of the few moral political controversies that is still linked to the notion of rights. And yet in this decision, which invokes this legalistic jargon about undue burdens and uh, various kinds of balancing tests, the issue of rights is getting lost. What's at the forefront is these state interests. The state has an interest in protecting the woman's ability to make choices on the one hand, but then the state's also supposed to have an interest in protecting her health against her own decisions. It's got an interest in protecting the potential life of the fetus. And then it's a question of, well, which of these interests does the state happen to have a greater interest in at the moment? Which, uh, and, and how does the policy serve those interests? This is no longer really a rights perspective. You know, the language of the right to abortion may get tossed around, but when you drill down, what you're looking at instead is a kind of pragmatic, uh, collectivistic, utilitarian standard where it's no longer a, a true individual right that's being granted, that's being protected, that's being argued for. Instead, it's a permission. It's the woman has the permission to have an abortion under certain circumstances when her decision doesn't defend against too many of these other alleged state interests. That's a big enough problem in and of itself that it's no longer a rights perspective, but it's, it's worse, it's made worse by the fact that these other alleged interests of the state are fictional. At least that's what I would argue. The state isn't some kind of living organism that has interests that it pursues. It has a proper function. It has a job to do. It's a job that we the people have given it to do. And that's the job of protecting individual rights. And that's its only job. That's, that's what the perspective on the constitution that I was discussing above, that's the perspective that it gives you, that, that government only has the proper functions that are specified to it in the constitution. Those are the protection of rights. There's nothing else in there about protecting the value of potential personhood or protecting us from our own bad decisions. There's nothing like that. I mean, so, it really is kind of an inversion there of, of what you were talking about at the beginning of the purpose of the Constitution and, and the onus of proof that the government should needs to have a power, and that's what needs to be proved. The rest should be left up to the individuals, to people, uh, you know, to exercise their rights as they deem fit. Um, and, you know, I, I know that some proponents of, on the other side of this debate will argue about the rights of of fetal personhood and, and all those things. But, but I mean, really the, the purpose of the constitution is to protect rights and to 
enumerate certain powers that government possesses to fulfill that function of protecting rights. But this, you know, the way that the abortion debate and the abortion jurisprudence specifically has developed over time, it completely, you know, inverts this and and establishes that government is the one with all of the interests at play, the interest in the woman, like you were saying, the interest in the potential life, and it and the woman's rights really kind of get lost or, or swept under the rug for the most part, even if even if as you're saying, you know, they do get tossed around and mentioned every now and again. Yeah, I think uh, a good way to summarize a number of the points that I've been urging here about how even though this decision has a good result in the sense that it strikes down an unjustified law, which was also true of Roe v. Wade, I think, the to the extent that it relies on this kind of balancing test, this kind of pragmatic calculus, it's not granting any kind of right. It's granting a permission. And here's a quotation from Ryan Rand that underscores the difference. This is from her 1946 pamphlet, Textbook of Americanism, where she says, a right is the sanction of independent action. A right is that which can be exercised without anyone's permission. If you exist only because society permits you to exist, you have no right to your own life. A permission can be revoked at any time. If before undertaking some action, you must obtain permission of society, you're not free, whether such permission is granted to you or not. Only a slave acts on permission, a permission is not a right. I don't think that the Supreme Court thinks that it's turning women into slaves by striking down these, uh, these abortion restrictions, but the kind of reasoning that it's using uh, has the implication that, that it's not really a right that they have to, to decide how to use their own body it's a permission that they are granted up until a certain point when the state decides fairly arbitrarily that it's got a greater interest in protecting her from herself or a greater interest in protecting uh, a potential life. That's not a right, that's, that's just a permission. And that's the biggest problem that I have uh, with this latest decision. It's not new, it's been making, the court has been making decisions like this for some time. You certainly saw it making this kind of decision in whole women's health. I'm glad these laws got struck down, but if, if I think that if defenders of abortion rights really want to defend them in the long run, they're going to need to find better arguments and better reasoning uh, so that what they're defending is actually a right and not just this kind of pragmatic permission. I was going to um, say, and I'll just, I'll just mention that that will be difficult to do, you know, in, in terms of affecting legal change, because the, the, the permission standard has kind of been around in this context specifically since the beginning of, since Roe, the first, you know, the case that started it all. Um, so really kind of urging the court to reevaluate its framework will be difficult. They're very reluctant to do something like that. Yeah, and especially because the parties who are making the different kinds of arguments here to make the argument they want to make, they have to draw on a, a kind of alien tradition. I mean, we already talked about how it's typically the kind of uh, the liberal court members who want to defend abortion rights, but to do it, they have to invoke unenumerated rights and the Ninth Amendment, and that's usually what the conservatives want to rely on. Meanwhile, the conservatives are opposing those standards, and then they're even 
arguing for these state interests in, in regulating of uh, healthcare providers. And in the, if you read the, um, the Samuel Alito dissent in this latest decision, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, Alito is usually understood as a conservative, but he's saying uh, on the question of uh, standing, on whether the abortion providers have standing to bring suit, as opposed to the woman whose abortion rights are restricted, Alito says, well, you can't uh, have a doctor uh, invoking third party standing because doctors have conflicts of interest with their businesses have conflicts of interest with their customers. And we, that's, that's why we regulate them. So he's completely kind of giving away the whole case that, a, that, a, that a someone in favor of free markets would ordinarily uh, need to rely on in order to argue against the regulation of businesses. So it, the, the, whole, the whole thing's a mess is my technical way of describing the situation. Um, so I think uh, we're, we're at a good point in time where we should really start encouraging people to ask questions. Uh, if you're on Zoom, best way to do this again is to use the Q&A box, hover over your screen, press that button. I see there's a couple that have come in already. I know there's a lot of chat going on, but it's hard to follow that. So please use the Q&A box. Uh, we haven't gotten any super chat questions on YouTube yet, though. I see Daniel has given us just a a uh, a donation in pound in euros uh, to thank us for our content. You're you're quite welcome, Daniel. Um, if you have other questions, if you have a question you'd like to ask it, Daniel, you, you get first dibs since you've already made that donation. Um, but I will uh, before we start to get any and more of those substantial questions. Let me at least put a few takeaway points up here on the screen of what we've been trying to argue today. Uh, one is the basic philosophic uh, premise that we're working from, which we could argue for if we have to say more. Uh, at least it was Ayn Rand's perspective that philosophically speaking, a woman has a right to an abortion for the reasons that I briefly mentioned. I think you can give an argument for why the Constitution does serve to protect abortion rights, contrary to what some critics will say. However, unfortunately, this recent June Medical Services decision doesn't do the work that it should to explain either why philosophically or constitutionally the woman has a right to an abortion. Instead, the problem I would argue is that it treats abortion as this kind of merely pragmatic permission. And I think that's just not good enough. So let's, uh, let's take a look at some questions that have come in, Paul. Uh, I see there's a question from uh, someone called Professor D in Zoom who asks, would you please define personhood? Now, I assume he's asked, I think this question came in when we were, I was going through the, the philosophic uh, basis for the right to abortion at the beginning of the webinar. I wouldn't attempt to define personhood, uh, Professor D, because I don't think that it's the relevant concept uh, that's at stake in, in the debate over abortion. It is often invoked. It is often described as a debate about whether or not a fetus is a person. And I think that's understandable. I think the more relevant concept here, though, is what is an individual human being? The trouble with the concept of person is that it's the way it's invoked, it's a kind of disembodied, uh, floating kind of rational consciousness. And there's then a question of, well, there could be all kinds of persons. They could be human beings. They could be aliens. They could be fetuses. They could be chimpanzees. Are they persons? That's not a concept that Ayn Rand uses in her understanding of rights. She uses the concept of individual rights. And it's because for her, what gives a being rights is not simply 
the kind of consciousness that it has, though that's part of it. It's, it's, it's a whole complex of other considerations having to do with the fact that human beings, in order to live in a society, need to use their rational minds and they need to be free from the physical interference of others in doing so. And so government needs to define boundaries around their lives. And this is a question that comes up first and foremost for individual grown adults. Now, there are people in the chat who are asking further questions about this because uh, it, does that mean then that it's only adults that have rights? No, I don't think it does mean that. And this is something that I've argued for in a number of different places, which I'll uh, refer you to at the end. And I think that children have rights too. Infants have rights too. Uh, and that's even though they're not fully developed. But the reason, in Ayn Rand's view at least, the reason that, and I agree with her on this view, the reason that birth is important is because birth is when you become physically and physiologically individuated from the mother. And it's at that point that the life of the fetus is no longer a burden or a conflict, uh, a necessary conflict with the woman's life. It, we, we have rights, we need individual rights in order to prevent and to resolve conflicts that we get into in society and presupposes the possibility of avoiding those conflicts. When uh, you have a fetus that is physically connected to uh, the body of its mother, there's no possibility of avoiding a conflict or a burden there except for having an abortion. But once a child is born, there's no, there's no necessary conflict anymore. If, if the mother doesn't want to take care of the child, somebody else can adopt it and it, it's no skin off her neck. So it's that, that's the fundamental issue. It's not personhood. It's what is an individual human being. And it's Ayn Rand's view is only once a child is born can it begin to acquire rights. And of course, even then, it doesn't have all of the rights that an adult does. It's only when you get to the age of majority that you have the full set uh, of individual rights. Uh, what are some of the other questions that have been coming in? Paul? Anne wants to know how we can begin to encourage the courts to reevaluate their frameworks for approaching issues as rights as opposed to permissions. And I would just say that there, there are a few ways that we can do this, but I mean, the most direct way is for those who are advocating the lawyers in front of the court to start to frame their arguments in ways that explicitly know, focus on individual rights as opposed to simply relying on the reasoning of the past presidents, although there's certainly value to that because the courts are sympathetic to their past precedents as being correct. But I mean, you can also write law review articles, you can speak and talk and, and just discuss these issues and frame them in ways that we've been trying to do today in terms of discussing them as individual rights. I mean, Ben has written in several places about abortion rights and, and how you know important those are and, and Rand's view. So there are a lot of ways that we can do this, um, but again, it is a, a slow process necessarily just because it, you have to change specific people's minds and some of them are, they won't be willing to change their mind. So some of it's a matter of time, some of it's a matter of persuasion and just you know bringing the arguments again and again until they, they sink in. Yeah, and I should say here that, uh, reiterate a point that our colleague uh, Ankar Gatte often makes, which is that the, of all the different branches of government today, the 
the legal system is the most rational. It's the one that, that explicitly functions through arguments. And judges read friend of the court briefs, which the amicus briefs, which sometimes actually influence their decision. And that's not to say that it, you know, can completely bypass the philosophic framework that the justice is working with. But there have been, you know, really good positive outcomes when the right argument gets into the right hands of the right person. And of course, it also matters which kinds of justices get appointed. But uh, that's something we have less control over as individuals. We do have more control over the arguments that we ourselves make. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? Uh, the uh, Richard, hi Richard, asks, uh, did the power to restrict abortion proceed from the assumed power to regulate the practice of medicine? If so, would a right to abortion be secured by striking the power to regulate the practice of medicine? Richard, I don't think that's the only issue that's at stake here, but I, I certainly think that it's a significant one. It's the, the fact that, and this, this relates to some of the issues I was just mentioning about Justice Alito's dissent. Um, it, one of the procedural issues that's at stake in this latest decision is about the question of standing. Uh, there's a long tradition in which in order to come before a court, the party bringing a case or controversy before the court has to be the party that's actually been uh, harmed or victimized in some way by the allegedly unjust law. And so one of the big arguments, one of the big uh, objections to the latest set of uh, abortion cases is that it's not a woman whose right to abortion has been restricted who's actually bringing forth the case. It's, it's the abortion providers. And the, plaintiff, the plaintiffs will say, well, uh, we, we can invoke third party standing because it's very difficult for the woman to you know, bring a case for lots of different reasons. And the, uh, the abortion providers are better suited uh, to represent her interests. And I think, I mean, I actually think that the, someone else in the, in the, in the Q&A asked about uh, Gorsuch's dissent. And this is also something that came up for, I believe in Thomas's dissent. I think that, uh, there probably are very good reasons to think that the, it should be first party standing only that you'd have to have a very strong reason uh, to think you can make an exception to that. And I think that the plaintiffs didn't make very good arguments for why third party standing should be justifiable here. But it's interesting to think about why they had to stretch the concept of standing uh, in order still to strike down these laws. And, and I think a big part of the reason is they don't have any conception of what it would mean for an abortion provider as a doctor to come forward and say, no, my rights are being violated by this, this law just as much as the woman's rights are being violated. And that's because, uh, and there's a long history uh, that I think Paul could tell us more about here, that's because there's a, the court has a long tradition of, of arguing that economic liberties are not fundamental liberties. They don't get what they call strict scrutiny. This is in the, the post lochner era, where instead there's a lower standard that the government has to meet to show that uh, there's a justification for restricting someone's economic liberties. And that's where all these other state interests then get pulled in. And that's certainly been, uh, and Paul, maybe you should say more, but that's certainly been the basis for all kinds of regulations and restrictions, not just on healthcare providers, but all kinds of other businesses. And it's what then 
leads to the fact that healthcare providers aren't really able to assert any kind of fundamental constitutional rights on their own behalf, which I think is another unfortunate outcome of this uh, decision and uh, problem in the way that it was reasoned. Did you, did you want to say more about the strict scrutiny issue, Paul? Um, I, I just wanted to add that I, I think you're right to bring out the, the Lochner era decisions or post-Lochner decisions as, as a reduction of protection for economic interests, but just taking it back a little bit more to Richard's original question, I think about the regulation of a, the practice of abortion and the ability to get an abortion. Uh, I, I think this also relates to something called the police power that individual states have the ability to regulate for the general welfare and the health of their own citizens. And so, you know, when, when the court is saying in decisions like Roe and Casey that the court has the power to pass restrictions to ensure that these procedures are safe and then they can outlaw certain procedures that are, you know, too risky. You know, it really, it stems from that power. And I think there is a legitimate, you know, the police power is a legitimate thing for states to exercise, though whether it's exercised correctly in a given case uh, is up for debate. And it's, it's notable, isn't it, Paul? It was a recent decision where uh, there was a law in Texas that closed a bunch of abortion clinics because of the pandemic, and it invoked this police power uh, criterion to do that, uh, just for the sake of uh, protecting the health of all parties concerned. Yeah. So it's yeah. a it's 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 become a very malleable standard, uh, and you know it's been used for all kinds of other regulations, I presume as well. Well, now it's. It's a standard that's reaching across the aisle, as it were, to uh, uh, restrict even more uh, liberties that are recognized by some, at least, to be fundamental. What else do we have here? Somebody, okay, there's somebody asked the question of a person who twice, but then Stephanie's question touches a little bit on the same issue. I think it's important to understand why newborns have rights, even though they are not yet engaging with others by using their rational faculties. What newborns need is the right to their life to be free from interference or harm. I mentioned the foregoing because I came up against the argument that newborns can, can't interact with others. So why is the line magically drawn at birth? Do either of you have anything specifically to say in answer to that argument? Well, some of it I've already addressed, I think, Stephanie. The, I explained why physical and physiological individuation is an important necessary condition for the possession of individual rights. But I would add one more thing, uh, because you're asking, why is the line magically drawn at birth? And one of the questions that often comes up in these debates is, is it magical thinking to suppose that one minute before birth, the entity doesn't have rights, but one minute after birth, it does. Is, is there a heavenly choir that sings and there's all kinds of bells that sound at that moment when it gets its rights? Well, of course there isn't. That's true. Uh, and in fact, like any other biological process, uh, there aren't bright lines that are drawn by nature. It is, it is a continuous physiological process. Of course, you could, I should mention, make the same point about conception. Some people talk as if there is a magical moment at conception. In fact, it takes time uh, for an egg to be fertilized by a sperm as well. And you can get into all kinds of debates, but precisely what time that happens. 
but the broader point here is is actually uh, is actually epistemological. There aren't any lines that are drawn in nature for us, not only for rights, but for any other important concepts that we use. And here I would recommend to the audience, if you're interested in exploring this further, please take a look at Ayn Rand's book, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. It's, it's the book in which she articulates an entire theory of concepts that is designed to address this problem because the, the, the wider controversy in philosophy is between two popular positions. One is God draws lines for us. And then the other position says, well, there is no God, there are no lines, and so everything must be arbitrary. And the whole point of her epistemological theory is that that is a false alternative. Is that, yes, it's true, there are no lines in nature, whether between uh, beings that have rights and those who don't, or uh, between tables and chairs, or anything you want. But there are observable similarities and differences in nature that we can observe with our senses. And human beings are the ones who have to draw the lines. We're the ones drawing the lines. It's not magic. It's observing real similarities and differences, but then drawing lines where those similarities and differences are important for the rest of our knowledge. And one of the things I've tried to outline is, why is it important that we draw a line somewhere near birth? Well, because the reason that we need rights uh, is to coexist among equals in a society. And that's a question that only comes up once there's already physical individuation. And so a consequence of this is going to be, you know, there's not going to be a precise place we know to draw the line. There's going to be borderline cases. This is something that Ayn Rand deals with uh, also in her work on epistemology. But borderline cases aren't a problem. We, we make a choice. Uh, the objective facts, they'll give us a range within which somewhere in that range we need to draw a line. But then we are the ones who have to draw the line within that range. And, and birth is not the only question where this comes up. You can talk about uh, end of life decisions as well. And you can talk about just when does someone reach the age of majority? There are objective reasons we need to have a point at which someone uh, becomes a full-fledged adult. But again, there's no magical instant when that happens. And, uh, but it's you know, somewhere between 16 and 20 and different, uh, different jurisdictions are probably gonna draw that line differently, but they need to draw some line because we can't have infants signing contracts and we can't be treating adults as though they were children. Uh, which incidentally is what uh, laws against abortion do by saying they can only get abortion uh, by permission of their governmental parents. Uh, let's see, one more question at least, I think, from uh, Mary Aline, and this is a question that often comes up, so it's a good one to ask and think about. Mary Aline asks, I've seen a an attitude that amounts to, if you're irresponsible enough to get pregnant, then you have to pay the price, which shows a miserable attitude towards sex, she says. What do they think happens to the child? I guess that's a comment more than a question. I, I guess it is, Marilyn, but it's a, it's a, I saw people making similar uh, points in the YouTube chat. And so it's a comment that I would like to comment on myself, uh, especially to those who uh, take the position that you're disagreeing with. So, there's a question you have to ask here, but what does it mean to be responsible? Now, yeah, I think that uh, it's irresponsible to engage in reckless, promiscuous sex with a wide array of anonymous partners. Uh, 
you should, that would not be the responsible thing to do. But if what you're talking about is somebody who is in a committed relationship uh, and they love their partner and they are pursuing their happiness, sex is a natural and moral expression of that relationship. And the way to, to do it responsibly is to think, well, do I want to have a child with this person or not? And if you do, well, then you have sex and you have a child, no problem. But if you don't want to have a child, because there is no duty or obligation to be a parent, then you use birth control. But of course, birth control doesn't always work. It's not 100% uh, perfect. Uh, if a mistake happens, uh, it's not because you were being irresponsible. It's because you uh, weren't an infallible magical being who could uh, guarantee 100% uh, effectiveness of birth control. Now, when mistakes happen, what's the responsible thing to do? Is it to just say, well, I guess I'll be pregnant now? Or is it to, is it to correct the mistake? I mean, if you, the, the analogy I always give here is driving. I think most people will say that there can be perfectly responsible people who decide to drive to work, even though it involves taking certain risks. Now, of course, you shouldn't drive erratically. You should wear your seatbelt. You should stay under the speed limit, et cetera. But even when you do that, people will still get into accidents. And I don't think anybody would say, well, hey, it was your decision to go drive and you got in the accident. Now you should live with the consequences. And so the responsible thing to do is to not get surgery to fix your life-threatening uh, injuries. No, the responsible thing to do is to fix the injuries that happened because of an accident through no fault of your own. Even if it, you were being uh, reckless or, or irresponsible, either in your sex or in your driving, Still, the responsible thing to do is to not just take, is not just is not is to not just suffer and accept your injuries. It's to fix them, and I think the only th reason that people think responsibility means living with the negative consequences of a mistake is because they have an anti, as you suggest in your comment, Marilyn, it's because they think there's something inherently irresponsible about sex, and I think that's why I think you're right that it does show a miserable attitude towards sex. Sex is not an irresponsible thing in and of itself. It's a good thing. Uh, and I think a lot of the opposition to abortion is driven by an anti-sex perspective. And that kind of argument about saying it's irresponsible, I think that shows why that's the case. Um, Paul, we are close to time. I don't know if you had, have you had a chance to take a look at any of these other questions? Do we have time for any of them? You know, if I could just answer a question here really quickly, it's from Jeff. He's asking mm -hmm. about the Ninth Amendment. Mm -hmm. and why the court maybe steps around it. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned this toward the beginning, but I do want to reemphasize this. I think that it's very difficult for the court to use the Ninth Amendment in a meaningful way because it would mean that they would have to sit down and articulate and define what it means to have a right to something. And they don't want to do that because if they did it, incorrectly or uh, did a bad job of defining what that is, it would create so much chaos that they, that they wouldn't know how to, to handle it very well. And so they stick with known frameworks. Um, and really to use the Ninth Amendment, they would have to kind of sit down and, and create a standard of what it means to have a right to something, whether it's the right to an abortion, economic rights or anything else. Um, but it would have to be formulated in a way that would be, you know, intelligible and useful in the future. And that's just a very difficult thing to do. Uh, so I think that's probably why the court 
primarily avoids the Ninth Amendment and only occasionally references it when they can kind of justify their decision with other provisions of the Constitution as well. Um, I mean, I, it would be nice to see them try something with the Ninth Amendment, but I, I don't anticipate them changing their, uh, their approach to this issue anytime soon. Good, good. Thanks, Paul. I think we should start to wrap up. We are at time. So I am going to uh, take us out with a few suggestions for those who want to learn more about this issue, especially more about Ayn Rand's views about abortion. So first place to look, I think, is uh, go to the Ayn Rand lexicon. This is available for free on ARI's website. Uh, just type in abortion. It's actually the very first entry in the Ayn Rand lexicon, and you'll see there a number of passages from her work commenting on this issue. Uh, a number of those passages are also from one of her most noteworthy articles that touches on this subject. That's her article of living death, which appears in the book, The Voice of Reason. Uh, that entire article is also online at ARI's website, uh, on the ARI campus website, so check that out. That's mostly on the topic of the Catholic Church's opposition to birth control, which she thinks comes from this same anti-sex attitude that I was just talking about in reference to Mary Lean's question, but she also does apply the same concepts to abortion. And then I'd also suggest if you'd like to see how these ideas get applied to contemporary controversies, and, and if you'd like to see some of the answers to the arguments that we've been dealing with today, uh, I and a number of other scholars at the Institute have written articles on the subject of abortion. Go to newideal.einram.org, just do a search on the term abortion, you'll get a bunch of articles that come up on this issue. And I'd also like to reference a few recent webinars on the same topic. So just a couple weeks ago, I did a, I did a, a webinar with the Ayn Rand Center Latin America called Abortion and Individual Rights. I was joined by uh, Gloria Alvarez and we had a discussion on this issue and in the first 35, 40 minutes or so, I laid out uh, the, the basic philosophic case for why Ayn Rand thought that there is a right to an abortion and, it, and I, I emphasized how it is precisely the position on abortion that you would expect given the theory of individual rights that she has. And it is a distinctive theory of individual rights. It's different from other philosophers. Um, and it's a theory she formulated well in advance of any kind of commentary on, on the abortion controversy. I'd also point you to an earlier webinar I did uh, under the auspices of ARI's Philosophy for Living on Earth series just called Abortion Is Abortion Moral? And that was an interview that David Birnbaum conducted with me on this topic. I answer a lot of other questions like some of the ones that came up today uh, on the abortion controversy. Finally, let me just ask if you, if you enjoy this webinar, if you enjoy this podcast, we, we'd ask that you try to follow us. Uh, on YouTube, best way to do that is by clicking that red subscribe button. Uh, please also be sure then to click the bell afterwards. That's to get notifications for when we post new videos and when we go live. And last of all, if you have thoughts on today's webinars, if you have if you have questions about some of the issues that came up, or if you have ideas about future webinar topics that we might do, please send us an email to newideal.einran.org. We read all the email that comes in. We don't answer all of it, but we definitely read it all. And so we are very interested in hearing what you'd like to see happening on this webinar to the extent uh, that we can uh, serve that purpose. So 
thanks very much for watching today. And we will be back again next week with another episode of New Ideal Live where we apply Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy to the events and controversies of our day. Thanks, everyone. See you later. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.